The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 15. You can find that on page 961 in the blue Bibles in front of you. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? 
If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So what makes your life meaningful? What what makes you tick? What's the goal of all of this? Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you make the sacrifices that you make on a daily basis? Those are some of the most basic questions that we can ask as human beings. But life doesn't give us much in terms of opportunity and encouragement to to stop and ponder them. Whatever answers you might give to those kinds of questions, when we turn to the letter of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, we see that God's word actually gives us something like an organizing principle for our lives. What we're going to see in our passage for this morning that Tori just read for us is that there is a reality that is so important that it ought to shape everything about our lives. It's more important than our kids, than our spouse, than our career, than our home. It's a, it's a reality that gives structure and perspective to every other reality. And it's the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If you remember, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a, an ancient church at Corinth, probably written in the early 50s AD, so about 20 years after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And 1 Corinthians is is sort of one entry in a back and forth conversation between the Apostle Paul and this church that he had founded some years earlier. We've seen Paul addressing in this letter different issues that had uh, cropped up in the church. And he's also responding to questions and arguments that the Corinthian church has posed to him in their correspondence with him. And so here in chapter 15, uh, we see that the Apostle Paul has now turned from the topic he had been discussing, in really in chapters 12, 13, and 14, the idea of spiritual gifts. Now Paul addresses, uh, to, uh, turns to address the issue of the resurrection. It seems that some in the church had latched on to a terrible misunderstanding. The, the heart of the matter really is there in verse 12, uh, where Paul asks the church, he says, now... If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So some of the members of the Corinthian church were were suggesting that there is no such thing as a, a physical bodily resurrection of the dead. Now, it doesn't seem like they were saying that there was no life after death. Most people in the ancient world believed that there was life after the death. After death, Rather, they were questioning the idea that our bodies will be raised and that we'll spend eternity in a physical form. Well, of course, 
that teaching that had sort of cropped up or that belief that had cropped up in the Corinthian church was counter to the Christian message. So, so Paul asks, how is it that we can proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, and yet some of you are saying that the dead aren't raised? It just goes to show that they don't understand. They hadn't really grasped the implications of Christ's resurrection, the fact that he had risen from the dead and what that meant for our lives. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just see two things uh, from Paul's response. We're not going to get much past verse 34 uh, in today's passage. So Lord willing, we're going to take three Sundays uh, to think through Paul's response here in 1 Corinthians 15. This morning, we'll look at the ver- first 34 verses. And I'd like us to see two things that Paul, I think, argues here. First is the, the reality of the resurrection. We might say the certainty of Christ's resurrection. Uh, and then second, the significance of Christ's resurrection. So he, he's showing the Corinthians that, that it really happened, that Jesus was raised from the dead, and then he's unpacking for them uh, what it means for their lives. So first, let's start with that idea of the reality of the resurrection. Look at what Paul says there in verses 3 to 9. We read this. Paul says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So the the language that Paul uses, even in verse 1, when he he talks about uh, the gospel that the Corinthians received, and and here in in verse 3, where he talks about the message that he delivered, that that, met, that language, that verbiage of receiving and delivering was commonly understood as, as uh, indicating something that had been sort of passed down fully intact. It, this was a, a body of teaching here that Paul understood that the Corinthians had received from him and that he had passed on. And he, he understands that this particular sort of body of teaching is of first importance. Right? He says there, there is a truth that is of first importance that gets sort of top billing in our, in our belief. And so what we have here in the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 is, a, is an incredible glimpse into the confession of the earliest church. Right Here is what Christians have believed from day one of the New Testament era. Sometimes you'll see sort of, there'll be some kind of uh, new movie or new novel out that'll suggest that, oh yeah, you know, the church... You know, sometime in 400, 500, 600 AD, depending on people's history, the church kind of conspired together to create this myth about Jesus just because they wanted to control people. You know, usually the movie has Tom Hanks or Nicolas Cage in it, right? And and there's a big sort of conversation in the wider society about how all this stuff. What we have here in 1 Corinthians 15 is a letter written, attested beyond any sort of historical doubt in the 50s AD, so 20 years after uh, all of these events happened. And here Paul is telling us, look, this is what all Christians believe. Like this is what we see to be of first importance. First he says, Christ died for our sins. Christ. 
That's the Greek word for the, the Hebrew concept of Messiah, an anointed king. God had promised his people that he would send them a ruler who would come and, and rule over them and save them. And he's speaking of the Lord Jesus here. Christ, he says, died for our sins. The king came just as God had promised and didn't conquer with a sort of military victory, but actually gave up his life on the cross. Why did he do that? Did he do that to be a good example of self-sacrifice and love? Not primarily. Paul says he died for our sins. He gave up his life as a sacrifice, as a, as a substitute, standing in our place, taking on himself the punishment, the, the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Paul says this is of first importance. But not just that, he was buried. We know that he was placed in a, a previously unused tomb owned by a wealthy follower named Joseph, right? The, the burial itself isn't significant beyond the fact that it demonstrates that Jesus was really and truly dead. And then on the third day, Paul says, he rose from the dead. All, Paul says, in accordance with the scriptures. Here, the scriptures to Paul are the Old Testament. Right? The, the Old Testament had, had shown, just like in Psalm 16 that we read earlier, uh, that, that God would, would send an anointed king in the line of David and that this king would not be abandoned to death. There's essentially no dispute that there was a man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, who was hailed by his followers as the Christ, who was crucified by the Romans, and who was buried. So most secular historians will agree that that much at least is true. But it's that next claim, that Jesus rose from the dead, that he got up and left that tomb. That's where, that's where most people get off the train. But it's clear from this passage that this is exactly what the earliest, closest followers of Jesus have claimed from the very beginning, that he rose from the dead. Now, surely this idea of a resurrection is some kind of story. It's some sort of myth. It's not the kind of thing that modern people like us can really believe, right? It's a, it's a symbol. Well, I actually want to look carefully at what Paul says here and, and evaluate the evidence fairly. What I want to do is just point out the, the stories of three people that are kind of alluded to or, or mentioned specifically here in 1 Corinthians 15 and see their experience of the risen Jesus. There in verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 5 of chapter 15, Paul says that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to Cephas. So Cephas is the Aramaic name for the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, one of the leaders of the early church. So we read in the, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life that when Jesus was arrested, Peter crumpled. He was supposed to be the, the leader of Jesus' disciples, but when Jesus really needed Peter to stand with him, he completely chickened out. He denied even knowing Jesus so that no one would give him a hard time. He didn't want to suffer. He didn't want to be arrested along with Jesus. So when people said, hey, aren't you with that guy? He pretended like he didn't even know him. Peter, faced with the most important test of his character and courage that he would ever face in his life, right? Faced with the question of whether he would stand with Jesus when all the chips were down, he failed spectacularly in front of all of his friends. 
No wonder the Bible tells us that when Peter realized what he had done, he, he broke down and wept bitterly. The experience of Jesus being arrested and crucified left Peter as a shell. Again, this is a well-attested historical fact. The Bible mentions it repeatedly, not just in the gospel accounts, but it's referred to in the, in the epistles, the letters to the churches as well. There's no good reason why the church would make that story up. Right? If, you're, if you're making up stories to try and make your newfound religion look good, you don't make the, the leader of it look like a coward. It's clear that this actually happened. Peter denied Jesus at the most important moment. Second, there's the, the story of someone in this that's, that's not mentioned by name, but is sort of alluded to here in Paul's letter. Uh, that's a, a man named Thomas. Uh, there at the end of verse 5, uh, it says that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Uh, Paul's talking about the 12 disciples, uh, Jesus' sort of closest circle of followers and friends. One of those men, one of the 12 that Paul mentions there in verse 5, was a, a man named Thomas. And Thomas, we know from the gospel accounts, was a big talker. So in John's gospel, he proclaimed himself willing to die with Jesus. But when it came to it, he was devastated by the crucifixion. When the other disciples came to tell him that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead, Thomas didn't believe them. He doubted. Finally, the Bible tells us about a man named Saul. Saul was a Pharisee. He was a big-time leader of the Jewish people. And Saul, if there was one thing you knew about Saul, he hated Christians. He hated everything they stood for. He hated the lie that they told about Jesus and so he persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. He had them killed. He had them arrested. He, he even went to the governing authorities and, and got permission. He got traveling papers so he could go to other cities where Christianity was starting to take root and try to persecute the churches there. He wanted to destroy the church, whatever it took. So you have these three men. You have Peter, a cowering coward. You have Thomas, a skeptic who, who doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And you have Saul, a violent opponent. Now, flash forward in these people's lives just, just a little bit. First Peter. In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, we see Peter in front of the crowd preaching about Jesus, astonishing the crowd with his courage and boldness. In Acts 4 and 5, Peter's told to stop preaching by the, the ruling authorities, the ones he was so afraid of, and he says, forget it. I can't obey you, I have to obey God. In chapter 5, they have him beaten, and he leaves rejoicing that he got to suffer a little bit like Jesus did. Now, what about Thomas? Well, you look at the end of John's gospel, and there's Thomas, the skeptic, right? Literally the name Doubting Thomas. That concept is named after this guy, right? He is the, the face of, of doubt and skepticism. By the end of John's gospel, he's flat on his face, calling Jesus his Lord and his God. And this guy Saul, who wanted to murder all the Christians, well, now his name's changed, and his name is Paul. He's the author of this letter to the church at Corinth. He's the one insisting that Christ died for our sins. And so the question we have to ask is, what caused this radical change in the lives of these three men? How did Peter go from being a sniveling coward to someone with shocking boldness? How did Thomas go from the poster child for doubt to confessing his faith? 
How did Paul go from a Christian killer to someone willing to die for the cause of Jesus? And friends, there's only one answer. There's only one explanation. Each one of those men had an encounter with the risen Jesus. Jesus appeared to Peter on the banks of the sea, assured him of his forgiveness, restored him. Jesus appeared to Thomas and invited him to put his hands into the holes that the nails had made. And finally, Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, arresting him, as it were, as he went to persecute Christians. And Jesus gave Paul a new mission to proclaim his gospel throughout the world. Friends, each one of those men had an encounter with the risen Lord. There's no other way we can explain their behavior. Something had to happen. Something accounts for that 180-degree turn. By their own testimony, that thing, the thing that changed them, was seeing the risen Lord Jesus. That was their explanation. And no other explanation makes any sense. As if that's not enough, there in verse 6, Paul says that Jesus appeared to another 500 people. And Paul says most of them are still alive. We don't get any details about this appearance in the, in the gospel accounts, but it's likely it would have had to be shortly after Jesus' resurrection, probably took place in the open air in the hillside in Galilee. Presumably most of those 500 people were fairly young. Lifespans weren't that long in those days, and Paul says most of them are still alive here 20, 30 years later. But if you think about it, if, if Paul is trying to pull a massive deception here, right, if, if in fact he, he's trying to convince the Corinthians of something he knows is not true, right, which is really the only other explanation you can come up with, either the, the apostles are telling the truth or, or they're perpetrating a massive fraud. If Paul's trying to perpetrate a fraud, then he's completely overplaying his hand here. Right, it's one thing to say that a small group of people saw something. But Paul doesn't just claim that. He says that he can point to 500 other people who could verify the same story. And presumably the Corinthians could go and interview those people if they wanted to. So Sir Norman Anderson, a 20th century English lawyer who wrote a book about the evidence for Christ's resurrection, he said about Paul's words here, he says, this is one of the most significant statements in the whole of the New Testament. Paul was no fool. And he knew perfectly well that he had a host of enemies eager to pounce on him if he made any questionable statement. So it is exceedingly unlikely that he would have staked his whole credibility on the fact that there were three or 400 persons still alive who claimed to have seen the risen Christ if this had not been the simple truth. It was tantamount to saying, if you don't believe me, there are plenty of people who can confirm the statement. Go and ask them. Friends, the evidence for the resurrection is strong. You have over 500 witnesses, many of whom were still alive. You, you have the utterly transformed lives of, of Peter and Thomas and Paul, the men who are now willing with the rest of their lives to go out and die for the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Christianity is unashamedly a faith rooted in historical events. When we are listing out the things that are of first importance to us, we're not talking about concepts or philosophies or speculations. When Paul says, this is what's of first importance, he then says things that actually happened in history. 
We have copies of this little book uh, called Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb by Val Grieve uh, that we uh, would love to put in your hands. So this book, is a, it's simple, it's clear, it's accessible. Uh, it just lays out for you uh, the historical evidence uh, for the resurrection. It, it imagines a sort of trial of sorts uh, where we put the evidence on, on trial and come up with a verdict. Uh, so we have a, a bunch of these copies actually out in the lobby. We would love for you to take one. Actually, would take as many as you could usefully uh, employ. So if you know someone who would benefit from thinking through this, if you yourself would just love to brush up on it or, or think about it, um, there's really no more important question than did Jesus literally, truly, physically get up out of the grave. And so we think this book uh, is a helpful resource. So that's the reality of the resurrection. Uh, we spend time establishing that fact because, because nothing else matters if that's not true. Uh, let's move on now and, and look at the significance of the resurrection. What does it matter? Why does it matter? Uh, Paul addresses the topic both negatively and positively. Negatively, he tells them about all of the consequences if, in fact, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, as some of them were supposing. Again, from verse 12, it seems that some of the members of the church were saying that there was no resurrection of the dead. Again, not, not understanding them to mean that there's no sort of eternal life or life after death, but, but rather that we're not physically raised from the dead. And so in verses 13 to 19, Paul responds to that idea. He says, if there is... This is verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see Paul's argument there in verses 13 and 16, right? If it is true that no one is raised, right, as some in the Corinthian church were saying, then Jesus himself was not raised, right? That's just basic logic, right? If there is no bodily life after death, then Jesus cannot be physically alive after his death. And so Paul fleshes out for the Corinthians and for us five things that necessarily follow uh, on from that idea. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Uh, first, he says there in verses 14 and 15 that his preaching is in vain and that he's a liar. In other words, Paul says that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, everything I've told you is meaningless and empty and void Worse, Paul and the other apostles who claim they did see Jesus raised from the dead are, are brazen liars. They're guilty of misrepresenting God. They've said something important about him that simply isn't true. And if Paul and the apostles are liars, then the Bible is a lie as well. It's a, a book full of lies, hideous lies, in fact, that have led billions of people astray for the past 2,000 years. That's a serious consequence. Paul says, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, I'm a liar, and my ministry's in vain. Second, Paul says that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our, our faith is vain and futile. There in, in verse 2, he, he raises the specter. He says, unless, he says, uh, this is the gospel by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed 
in vain. There in verse 14, he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. Right? If Christ is still in the tomb, then, then your faith, your trust in him is useless. It doesn't help you even one bit. This church is useless. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of resources. It's a waste of space. I've wasted my life. You've wasted your life. If Jesus is still in the tomb, Christianity is not a good belief system that can help you to become a better person. It's not some way to follow a great, wise, ancient teacher. Paul says it's a lie and it's empty. Now, people nowadays want to say something like, well, of course the resurrection didn't really happen. It's a symbol, right? It's a, it's a word picture. It's meant to inspire us about the, the triumph of the human spirit. Or, or perhaps just the fact that Jesus' truth will live on beyond his life. But friends, that's not how the Apostle Paul understood it at all. He understood that if Jesus was still in that rock tomb, if that tomb were not physically, historically, actually really empty, then our faith is worthless and Christianity is worthless. The third consequence Paul fleshes out here is that if Christ wasn't raised, you're still in your sins. There in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Remember, Paul told us Jesus died for our sins. He died as a sacrifice to pay the penalty that we deserved for our sins. But here Paul says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then his death didn't actually accomplish anything. And you're still in your sins. You've not been saved by any, from anything. If there's no resurrection, then the cross doesn't matter at all. Uh, the, the resurrection is, in a sense, God the Father's vindication of Jesus. It's his stamp of approval on Jesus' life and death. It's God saying this sacrifice is acceptable to cover sins. So if God didn't raise Jesus from the tomb then Jesus isn't alive. He can't save anyone. His death was not accepted. And we're still in our sins. Fourth, not only are we still trapped in our sins, but every other person who's ever died with their faith in Christ has perished. There in verse 18, Paul says, those who have fallen asleep, that's a euphemism for death. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Every faithful member of this church who's ever gone to the grave with their hope firmly planted in the Lord Jesus, understanding that when they closed their eyes in death, they would wake with him, all of them were fooled. None of it actually is going to happen. They've all just simply perished, Paul says. Thousands of years of people dying in hope, gone, perished, Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There in verse 29, Paul asks this sort of strange rhetorical question. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? And it's so clear what's going on here, I barely even feel like I should mention it. But really, there's a lot of questions, right? Like, Paul, what are you, like, what are you talking about, being baptized for the dead? It, it seems like the Corinthians had a practice of being baptized on behalf of dead people. 
which is really weird. But if you think about it, it probably doesn't even crack the top 10 of th like things that were wrong with the Corinthian church. It's significant here that Paul doesn't seem to sort of uh, encourage what they're doing. He doesn't condone it. He rather points out that, that their practice seems to betray what they claim to believe. It, it shows that they, they understand the need for the resurrection of Christ. Something in them knows that there needs to be a hope for something beyond the grave. Some scholars suggest that what Paul's really getting at here is, is not some weird practice of being baptized for dead people, but rather the fact that baptism itself makes no sense without the resurrection of Jesus. In this case, what Paul's talking about when he says the dead, it's actually not some other dead person, but it's, it's our own sort of dead bodies, our bodies that are going to the grave. Right? Why are you getting baptized, Paul asks, for this body that's on its way to the grave permanently, Right? What, what does that make sense if Jesus himself wasn't raised? That, that could be true. That might be what's going on. We can't be sure. But what's important is Paul's trying to show them that their, even their own practice makes no sense uh, if they don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, fifth and finally, Paul, Paul says that if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then, then he and his associates are the most pitiful people in human history. Look there in verses 30 to 32. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So Paul says there in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says his life has been one of hardship and suffering, and danger. And all of that makes no sense if this life is all that you get. If this life is everything, Paul says, let's eat and drink because we're about to die anyway. My friends, this is the great reality that has haunted humanity. In the end, everything is meaningless in light of the grave. If death is the end, then hard as we may try, there is no meaning to anything that we do. This is, this is the sort of central lament of the, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Friends, if, if your plan is to spend eternity in a grave, then everything you do here, all of your sacrifice, all of your love, all of your achievement, it's all pointless vanity. If Jesus is still in the tomb, then there is no resurrection of the dead. Your life ends at the grave, and this is all you get. But friends, the great news, as we've already seen, is that Jesus is very much alive. All of those hypothetical scenarios, all of those people who have died without hope, all of the pointlessness of our lives, thankfully, is not the case because Jesus is alive. That means Paul and the apostles are reliable. What they say about the resurrection of, of Christ is true. Because Jesus was raised, we're no longer in our sins. Those who have died in Christ have not perished, but have, have taken hold of eternal life. Because Christ was raised, our faith is not in vain. It's well-founded. It's not rooted in myth. It's not rooted in superstition. It's not rooted in the opinions of people, but our faith 
is in a living Savior whose resurrection has proven that he is who he says he is and that he's done what he said he would do. Friends, with all due respect, the founder of every other world religion is still in their tomb. Muhammad is in his tomb. Siddhartha Buddha is in his tomb. Jean Daoling is in his tomb. Confucius, Joseph Smith, they're in their tombs. Jesus Christ is very much alive. And so our faith is not in vain. It's not placed in the, the words of a mere man who would go on to die and molder in a tomb. As a result, the Christian faith can't be placed in the same category as every other world religion. It's fashionable nowadays to, to say that all faiths are the same, we're all different paths going up the same mountain, but, but Jesus himself and the, the, the teaching of the early church will have none of it. Either he is the truth, either he's the one who got up from the dead and speaks the truth to us, or, or he's still in his grave and we shouldn't listen to him. If Jesus is alive, then every other faith is a lie. And if he isn't alive, then Christianity is the horrible lie, not, not even worthy of being included amongst the world's faiths. There's really no middle ground. The resurrection separates everything. It, it makes our faith reliable and true. Our faith is in a living Savior. And all those who have died with their faith in him have gone to be with him. And so our faith is not in vain, and neither is theirs. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, the life that Paul lived isn't pitiful. Despite all the beatings, the dangers, the persecutions, the fighting with beasts at Ephesus, no idea what he's talking about there, right? Dying every day, Paul understood that his life was well spent. Friend, your life, your service, your love, your sacrifice is well spent because it's not going to terminate at the grave, but will echo into eternity with Christ. Paul points out here five terrible things that would be true if Christ were still in the grave, but thankfully none of them are the case there in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. All of those worst case scenarios are not in play. In the rest of the passage, he moves to unpack some of the other implications of the resurrection. There's so much in this chapter, as I said, we want to take two more sermons to, to think about it after this week, Lord willing. But, but for today, with the, the verses in front of us, let's notice three more things that Paul shows us, three wonderful things that Paul tells us are true because Jesus really did rise from the dead. First, we see that because Jesus rose from the dead, we will certainly be raised one day as well. Look there in verses 20 to 23. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul says there that Christ is the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep, that is to say, died. 
That word first fruits isn't one that we use very often in English, but it describes the sort of ancient practice, the practice of uh, the nation of Israel, of giving the, the very first part of their harvest over as a gift to the Lord. The first fruits, the sort of the very beginning of the harvest, represented the fact that the whole harvest was coming from God. The farmer was giving the first fruits as a way of recognizing that the whole thing was a gift to him from the Lord. The, the first fruits symbolize the whole. The first fruits were, were a part, the first part that, that represent everything that's coming. And so Jesus is the first fruits, Paul says, of those who died. He represents all of the other people who will one day also be resurrected. Jesus represents all those who have trusted in him. Just as surely as he was raised, Paul says, we also will be raised with him. Just like the first fruits of a crop gave the farmer confidence and, and, and surety that the rest of the crop was coming, Paul says the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead means that we're going to be raised from the dead as well. Uh, Paul reminds us that Adam's sin brought death into the world and that we have all died in Adam. And he says in the same way, Jesus' resurrection brings resurrection for all who belong to him. Those who put their trust in Jesus have an unbreakable unity with him. That's what Paul's talking about a bit in Romans chapter 6 that we read earlier. That we're, we're in Christ, united to him. And because he rose from the dead, we know that one day when he returns at his coming, Paul says there in verse 23, we also will be raised from the dead. Because it's a historical fact that Jesus rose up from the grave it will also one day be a historical fact that we will be raised as well. Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, we'll have a chance to think more about what that resurrection will be like. At the risk of spoiling it, it's really good news. One day, the risen Jesus will return, and he will claim his people, and he will raise them from the dead, and he will destroy all opposition to God. And we know that's true because of the resurrection the second thing that Paul points out here is that now we, because Jesus rose from the dead, we have the power and the motivation that we need to pursue holiness in our lives. Now look there in verses 32 to 34 where we read this. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Again, if Jesus is in a tomb somewhere and this life is all that you get and you're dead in your sins and your faith is futile, then you might as well go all in trying to get as much pleasure as possible out of this world because you are on the clock. Paul reminds the Corinthians that bad company ruins Good morals. This was a, a common phrase, actually, from a, a secular uh, poet and playwright. Uh, Paul seems to be saying that look, those who claim that there's no resurrection, there in verse 12, the ones he mentions, they're having an impact on your character. Right? This bad company that you're keeping, these people in the church who are teaching lies, it's, it's destroying the sort of moral fiber of the church. These people, Paul says, have no knowledge of God. And so you shouldn't listen to them. Paul seems to be drawing a line between this theological commitment that they have, that there's no resurrection, and all of the sin and selfishness that he's been addressing in the church for the past 14 chapters. 
Like he's saying, it's bleeding over into the way you're living your lives. You're living like people who actually believe there's no resurrection. So he tells them there in verse 34 to sober up, to not go on sinning. It's a fairly simple idea. I think most of us have learned to live our lives now in light of the future. We understand it's not wise to spend every penny of your income, but you save because you want to be prepared for the future, whether that's retirement or paying for kids to go to college or buying a house. Right? If, you're, if you're a student and you're heading off to college, you, you might not want to sink a lot of money into buying a fancy new car that you're not going to need in the near future. Right? We all live now, making choices now based on what we believe about the future. Paul's simply saying the same thing here. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you have a future that will stretch beyond eternity. And so no sin, no drunkenness, no immorality, no greedy hoarding of your money, no bitter quarreling with others over things that don't matter, no selfishness, no anger, no gossip, no self-pity. None of that, Paul's saying, will make any sense in light of the future, in light of eternal life. When a Christian indulges in any of those things, Paul says it's like you're in a drunken stupor. You're functionally denying the reality of the resurrection. You're acting like you have no knowledge of God and what he's done. Paul's saying to us, Jesus rose from the dead. And Christian, you will too. And you can be sure that at that time, you will not be glad that you wasted even one moment of your time on all of these things, all of these sins. We have the power and the motivation now to live holy lives. Again, Romans chapter 6. And Paul says that we've been united to Christ so that his death to sin is our death to sin. And his resurrection from the dead is our spiritual resurrection to new life. We have a, a different relationship to sin than we did before we were in Christ. But because he's alive, uh, we are spiritually alive. We have the power and the motivation to turn from sin. And that brings us to see our third thing. The third thing that's true because of the resurrection of Jesus and this is where we'll conclude this morning. And that is, Jesus is greatly exalted. Look there in verses 24 to 28. Remember, Paul's just talked about the first fruits, right? Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. He, he said that he's going to return one day and we'll be raised with him. And so Paul says immediately after that, then comes the end. When he, that is Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I think Paul made that a lot more confusing than it had to be. But I think if we unpack it, we'll understand what he's saying. Jesus has risen from the dead and has ascended into heaven, and he is reigning over the world right now. So Paul refers to there in verse 25 where he says, he must reign until uh, he has put all his enemies under his feet. So we're waiting for the day when Jesus will complete that work 
of making all of his enemies, right, all of the things that stand against him, that have opposed his reign, all the things that we might, might be tempted to, to put our trust in and to believe in other than him, including that great enemy of death, right, that one thing that, that people fear most. We're waiting for the day when Jesus comes and puts all of those enemies, sin, death, under his feet and makes them a footstool. God the Father, it says, has put everything in the universe, except himself, of course, under Jesus' feet, there in verse 27. This language of, of subjecting and, and footstools, it seems strange to us. Paul's, Paul's really just referring back to Psalm 110. It was a psalm that the, the Christian church used often to help them kind of understand and express Jesus' reign and his relationship to his heavenly Father. Jesus Paul says there in verse 28, we'll submit to the Father who's put all things under his feet. Right, we've seen this language before in 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's clear the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are equal to one another in their dignity and in their deity, but that they take on different roles in the accomplishment of our salvation. And so here the Father puts everything in the universe except himself under Jesus' feet, and Jesus brings all things in subjection to the Father. But when Jesus returns, as Paul says there in verse 24, then the end comes. And really, the end just represents the beginning. The beginning of a world that's been made new, a world that's free from death, as he says there in verse 26. A world where our great enemy, death, has been finally defeated by the indestructible resurrection life of the Lord Jesus. This end ushers in a world that will continue on forever. The result of all this, Paul says in verse 28, is that God will be all in all. Just as he was in eternity past, in the future there will be no more rebellion, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death. There's obviously a lot more we could say about this. That's, again, why we're going to take a few more weeks to work through this chapter. But, but for now, the big takeaway for us is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And, and because of that, he, he is exalted to the highest place. He is ruling right now over all things. And when he returns, we will be raised with him. And all things will be subjected to him. And God will be all in all. That's a sort of blast of cosmic reality for your Sunday morning. Paul is pleading with the church to reimagine their lives in light of these truths. Really, all through 1 Corinthians, if you, if you had to just sort of summarize in just a, a few words what the book of 1 Corinthians is about, it's the Apostle Paul pleading with the church to, to stop living their lives in ways that make no sense of the gospel. Paul's pleading with the church to reimagine their individual lives and their life together as a church family in light of the truth of the gospel. And so here he's holding out to them the most beautiful, the most important truth that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that he's exalted in heaven now, ruling over all things, going to return, raising us from the dead, putting all things under the, the Father and reigning forever. Paul's saying, that's a story that ought to shape your life. You need to reimagine your daily life. We as a church family need to reimagine our corporate life together in light of those realities. Because the ways we're tempted to live, the ways the Corinthians were living, right? Just think about the squabbling, the lawsuits, the, the sexual immorality. 
It all shows that their lives were dominated by a different narrative, a different truth. So Paul is pleading with the Corinthians, recalibrate your life according to this good news, according to the fact that you have a Savior who died for your sins and who rose from the dead, who's coming back for you. And brothers and sisters, that's what we need as well. We need to reimagine our lives, again, as individuals and as a church, in light of this truth. We need to be a people who are marked by the reality that Jesus is raised from the dead and that we will one day be raised as well, that we're not dead in our sins, that our faith isn't futile, that we don't actually have to go out pursuing as much pleasure as we can get in this moment. We don't have to eat and drink because tomorrow, even if we die, we're not dead forever. And you know, God's actually given us a way to do that as a church family. He's given us a way to reimagine our lives week in and week out, right here and right now. And, and, and that way is the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we come together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. We come to his table at his invitation. And I don't, don't know about you, I've never received a dinner invite from a dead man. I've never shared, shared a meal with someone who's still in a tomb. And so here at the table, we have before us the, the elements, the bread that represents the body of Christ broken for us, the, the wine that represents his blood shed for us. But we're also holding out the, the hope of the resurrection as well. Because we come to the table not to remember a, a dead man, but to commune with a man who is very much alive. Here at the table, the risen and ascended and ruling Lord Jesus invites us as his people to come and have fellowship with him, to celebrate the friendship that we have with him, to rejoice in the salvation that we've received from our sins because of his broken body and shed blood. Jesus calls us to come and to celebrate here at the Lord's table that we have a sure hope of a future resurrection. He calls us to come and be glad that Jesus is exalted now and reigning over all things. And so that's the best way, I think, the first way to apply this sermon is to come to the Lord's table in faith, with joy, rejoicing in all that Christ has done for us and all that he is. But before we come to the table, let's take a moment to examine our lives. That's Paul's encouragement to the same church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he, he says, let a person examine themselves then and so eat of, the, and drink of the, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Lord's Supper is for all those who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ. That's normally demonstrated by obeying Jesus' command to be baptized and to be connected to a local church in membership. Friends, it's a very broad invitation if you've had a bad week, if you've sinned, if your faith feels frail, if you're anxious, depressed, and unworthy, well, then come to the table. The Lord has given you this gift to strengthen your faith, to nourish you with the gospel. But it's not something to be taken lightly. If you know yourself not to be a Christian, First, let me say how glad we are that you're here with us this morning. You're a very welcome guest. 
And we'd encourage you not to participate in this meal by, by coming forward because it would be a celebration of something that's not yet true of you. Instead, we'd encourage you to think about what it is that Paul said to the church at Corinth, that the most important thing is that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And we'd encourage you, friend, to turn from your sin and to trust in the Lord Jesus and hopefully celebrate this meal with us at some point in the future. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, but if your life is marked by a sin that you have no intention of turning from, or if you insist on holding on to bitterness against a brother or sister in Christ, so that it actually calls your profession of faith in Christ into question, well then, friend, do what Christians do. Repent. Turn from your sin and come to the Lord's table. But if you won't, then you shouldn't come. Instead, we'd encourage you to talk to one of the elders after the service. Uh, let us help you. So we're going to take a moment now to confess our sins to the Lord in accordance with Paul's instructions. And then we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate together. So we'll have a moment of, of silent reflection. Uh, and then we'll confess our sins to the Lord. And let's pray.